So Philip, led by the Spirit, walks along a deserted road south from Jerusalem to Gaza. He happens to find another person, a high-powered Ethiopian eunuch riding in a chariot reading Isaiah. The Spirit then prompts Philip to go and engage this person, and Philip runs to catch up with the chariot, gets invited to ride along, and proceeds to have a conversation. The Ethiopian asks, who is Isaiah speaking about, himself or someone else? Philip shares about the good news of Jesus. Here we might assume that he retells the story of Jesus' death, resurrection, the call to repentance, salvation, baptism, and the Christian life. But we don't really know. We don't really know what was so attractive and caused the Ethiopian then to see the water and then ask, what might prevent me from being baptized? They stop the chariot, get into the water, and Philip baptizes them. The spirit snatches Philip away, and the Ethiopian continues on rejoicing. Any questions? <laughs> I have a few. What do we know about Philip? Who's Philip? What is the significance of all of the Holy Spirit's promptings? Why was an Ethiopian outside of Jerusalem anyway? Why were they reading Isaiah? What was the good news for the Ethiopian that compelled them to want to be baptized? And what is important for us to reflect on? In my observation, this story seems very fast-paced, with no thinking involved as the Spirit is just calling the shots. Philip is running, very little gets explained, and then we have a quick baptism and Philip is snatched away. Looking deeper, this story reflects a number of themes already present in Acts. The beginning of Acts, the Holy Spirit has descended and is moving and promoting the spread of the good news of Jesus. And we see this action three times in the compelling of Philip. Take this road, run up to that chariot, and after all is said and done, the Spirit snatches him away. We see a pattern get repeated of witness to Jesus' life by the disciples through preaching and demonstrating signs and wonders, the subsequent belief of the listeners, their baptism and receiving of the Holy Spirit. The apostles have a special power and authority to continue Jesus' ministry, and they offer proofs from the Jewish tradition that point to the fulfillment of the prophets, quoting Joel, and David, Moses, Abraham, and retelling the liberation story from Egypt in their preaching. And in our story, our characters are reading Isaiah. Philip joins the story of Acts in chapter 6 in Jerusalem, where there are seven deacons chosen to help with the distribution of food so that the apostles can focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. Philip is chosen to be one of the seven. Stephen is also chosen, and his work provokes outrage, and he is killed by stoning. Saul is named as having orchestrated the persecution and imprisonment of many. The apostles stay in Jerusalem, but with the threat, many others of the disciples scatter. 
including Philip, who goes on, on, on his own to Samaria. Philip's ministry follows a similar pattern of preaching, healing, and baptism, and it seems significant that the Samaritans are now included in the story. Then Peter and John follow to check out the situation, baptize with the Holy Spirit, preach some more, and return to Jerusalem. So here comes our story, and it comes just before Saul's conversion and ministry to the Gentiles, this spirit moving out. We don't hear about Philip again, actually, until the end of Acts, where he hosts visitors in his household in Caesarea, living with four daughters who prophesy. This story of Philip's ministry is an example of how the movement expands from, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And many are convinced by the witness of the disciples, even this unlikely character, the Ethiopian. My sermon in one sentence, the spirit is building a powerful network that expands across borders and across time. With the Spirit's prompting and Philip's running, we see an opportunity for accompaniment and companionship on the deserted road. Philip responds to the Ethiopian's need for understanding of Scripture. And in reading the Scriptures together with a small group, I learned from Grace, who is studying the Jewish tradition, that in the Jewish community, no one is allowed to read Torah by themselves. And their sense, because their sense of peoplehood requires that more than one person be involved in the reading. And it is also like saying about be, the saying about being Jewish. No one can be Jewish by themselves. This is also illustrated in John's gospel. You can't be a single branch growing on a vine. We need to be growing together, sharing with each other's pain, grieving together, and studying together. The assumed dynamic conversation with Philip, we don't know what the conversation was about, but it seems to clear up the Ethiopians' confusion over whether they were included in this new community or not. The prominent Jewish teaching from Deuteronomy excludes people who are castrated. As eunuchs were considered to be sexually immoral, they would have been unable to enter the temple. They were not part of God's promise to be fruitful and multiply. And we know the Ethiopian is marginalized by society as they are also not mentioned by name in this story, like women on the fringe. This Ethiopian's unique role in society allowed them to transgress boundaries, be in men or women's spaces, but they would have been excluded from worship and family. The teaching from Isaiah is in direct contrast, as Isaiah 56 describes eunuchs who keep the Sabbath as ones to be given an everlasting name, a name even better than sons or daughters, a teaching that seeks the restoration of all of God's people. And the Ethiopian would have strongly identified with the passage of the one that was shorn, humiliated and denied justice. As written in Isaiah, you are like sheep being led to slaughter. You are like a lamb that is mute in front of its shearers. Like them, you never opened your mouth. 
you have been humiliated and have no one to defend you. Who will ever talk about your descendants since your life on earth has been cut short? The Ethiopian then tests Philip's sense of inclusion by asking, what might prevent them from being baptized? And Megan helped expand this question in our pastoral reflections. Is there anything that might disallow me? Is there a boundary to transgress? Do you have to break the rules? Philip seems to suggest that there, by his actions, that there is absolutely nothing to prevent baptism. Rather than seeing a violation of the purity code, the walls of prejudice and prohibition come tumbling down. In the Ethiopian's immediate response to seeing water, we understand there is something about Jesus that is attractive and transformative. And in an echo from last week's sermon, there are particular, particular sheep that Jesus longs to bring in. Every day in community ministry at God's Little Acre, we face the spiritual woundedness of people on the street involved in self-sabotaging behavior and belief that they are worth less. The self-destructive risk-taking and coping strategies often stem from adverse childhood, childhood experiences where people are needing to deaden the emotional reality of being excluded. The reality is that over time, people have lost their social network and now live in social isolation, and they feel they only have themselves to blame. They don't see the larger structures of health care, education, immigration, militarism, racism, sexism, mass incarceration, mass incarceration and economics that have an unseen power over their lives. Our community might recall the experience of veterans and remember Phil Carrasco and his brokenness that led him to suicide after we helped him into housing. As Easter people, it is our task to help rebuild that social network, companion people, and hold out hope for their return to wholeness in the midst of the utter brokenness of humiliation and shame. And these folks need a story of good news. And we are especially in need of the spirit as we have no idea how the healing might come. All we know is that it depends on our showing up being present and open to the work of the Spirit. How do we translate this gospel so it might be so compelling that people might strongly identify with Jesus, with the possibility that they might even be ready to receive baptism? As followers of Jesus, we do this work together, encountering another person, building trust, avoiding assumptions or placing judgment, being present and reflecting back the pain experienced and sharing the unique identity of being human to human. Familiar with pain, though also familiar with our own privilege. This is a dimension of relationship building that helps to spread the good news. There was much social capital being built in Jerusalem that created energy and power that was attractive and effective. 
a critical expansion of the early community of believers, and one might call this bonding social capital. This group was together in community, teaching and reading scripture and finding shared value and strength in the belief in Jesus. And this propels right action to feed the widows and start a food distribution ministry. Philip's work demonstrates another form of social capital. We have this bonding between the group, and he is bridging this bridging social capital with other groups. So we see him relating to the Samaritans and also relating to the Ethiopians. The relationships expand beyond the community and bridge to other groups. And in other writing, we understand that this Ethiopian, in their rejoicing, becomes a missionary and continues the spread of the good news, now including Judea, Samaria, and Africa. The early church was was very effective in its ministry, and strong social capital continues to be the strength of the church today. And I was at SU, Seattle University this last week and at a symposium on homelessness, and John Coleman, professor and priest in California, spoke of the congregational assets of social capital. And I think about what this, this congregation has done in its relationship to Mennonite disaster service, building 10,000 villages, the Camp Camrack effort, the Mennonite voluntary service, the expansion to Burundi and thinking about trauma healing, the Suriname Indigenous Health Fund, and on and on and on, the way this congregation impacts. And that's because of our bonding, our social capital. We, we are able to do more because there are more people part of the effort. And through the connections of the church, the church is especially able to organize, provide volunteerism and financial support to efforts that provide basic needs listening ear and to even end homelessness one person at a time. Parachurch organizations were also named with a special ability to provide bridging capital to expand and include other groups. So it's not just our congregation, but expanding to other groups. Through the offering of radical hospitality, relationships are built, ties are strengthened, and the message of love is spread. Coleman claims that even more than community-based organizations, faith-based organizations have the potential to do this work more effectively because of its holistic approach. Motivation with a higher purpose, deep engagement of the scripture, commitment to discipleship, and the openness to the spirit to act out of our deep love for one another and all people. We see this bridge building work via the Lake City Task Force on Homelessness and the tremendous effort of the larger community to partner, provide shelter and companion. Many people on the street with over 300 volunteers and I am amazed always by the generosity of the groups that join us. I think of Aziza and the Idris Mosque who regularly run a clothing drive for Gaza Laker drop-in and offer to partner with the shelter. When the shelter is at Seattle Mennonite, they provide the Thanksgiving meal, the Christmas meal, the New Year's meal, and they will be catering for us uh, when we have a community celebration, catering Turkish food, May 22nd, for which you're all invited. And I am grateful also to Samuel Dahling, who has agreed to represent Seattle Mennonite on the Lake City Partners Board. Thank you.
The church has asked what is our commitment to this expanding work, and I tell you this, this work is nothing without the Spirit's infusion. Let the church do what it is called to do. The most critical thing that we can do together in this effort is to continue to remind our community that homelessness is not a result of individual failure, rather that of inhumane systems of oppression. We have a much greater voice when we bridge with others and join coalitions such as Housing for All, working at changing the political will to end homelessness and unmasking systems that contribute to the breakdown of communities. It is not charity work that will change these broken systems. It is advocacy. Our other lectionary reading from John's Gospel, just a short piece about it, highlights the ability to bear fruit as being closely tied to this vine, this trunk. This ability together helps us greater understand what God desires, tapping into a power beyond ourselves. We will face hardship, but we have each other to share the burden. What ongoing work do we need to do? For some of us, it might be the invitation to continue to study and read the Bible together as we seek to understand what might inspire healing, health, and transformation. And then to go out and act out of God's love for us. For others, it might be a deep healing that is still needed. So I ask, what transformation do you seek? May it be so that the Spirit is building a powerful network of people that expands across borders and across time to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God together as community.